verse 19. Now we're going to pick up the pace a bit. So fasten your Bible belts. Here we go. Verse 19. When they go out to the outer court, into the outer court to the people, they should put off their garments in which they have been ministering and lay them in the holy chambers. And then they shall put on other garments so that they will not transmit holiness to the people with their garments. That's interesting. Priestly consecration is a serious thing. So serious that God doesn't want them in their consecrated clothing brushing up against the common people. There is a separation of that which is holy from that which is profane. Continuing on verse 20, Also they shall not shave their heads, yet they shall not let their locks grow long. They shall only trim the hair of their heads. So no funky hairstyles among the priests. Why is that? Why not long or short? Why, why, why this specificity here? Gang, listen, it's humble moderation. I didn't believe this as a young youth pastor, but I believe it very strongly now as a more, I guess, matured adult. And that's that humble moderation in the way we dress, in the way we keep ourselves, it doesn't attract attention to ourselves. And God is saying, I don't want long hair. People go, whoa, look at the locks, dude. You know, I don't want short hair where the people are going, whoa, the sun's shining off your head. You know, I want just simply kept hairstyle, nothing that's going to draw attention to the priest, because the priest is not the point. Verse 21, nor shall any of the priests drink wine when they enter the inner court. So the priestly concentration, consecration, the humble moderation, and no foolish inebriation. Right? That's banned. No drinking. If you're a priest and you're serving the Lord, you do not come in here with wine on your breath. I don't care if you're drunk or not. If it was even a single glass, you don't do it on the day that you serve. Absolutely banned from those serving in the temple courts. Why? Well, the Lord has a long memory. And He remembers what so often leaders and churches forget. And that's all the way back to Leviticus chapter 10, verse 9, on the first day of the tabernacle and the priestly service, and the two sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, got drunk and offered up strange fire. And they probably offered up the strange fire because they were tipsy. And they were not thinking. They were not clear on what they were about. And my friends... You all, we all have to make a choice when it comes to wine and and alcohol in our lives. But let me tell you something. (laughs) How far do I want to push this? The priests and those in leadership, especially, need to think twice about imbibing it all. And I, you know, it's it's everybody's call before the Lord. You've got to make that. Even even the priests here, he doesn't say they can't drink. He says, don't drink wine when they enter the inner court. Don't drink wine when, when you're serving. He doesn't say don't drink wine. So there's not an absolute prohibition. But I, I appreciate what Solomon has to say. And it's at the end of Proverbs uh, 31 where he says, It is not for kings, it is not for kings to drink wine, O Lemuel, lest they forget themselves. Lest they forget their office and the judgment and the wisdom that they're supposed to have in that place. I read that and the Lord said, so Rick, are you going to preach this? And I said, well, yeah. And he said, so are you going to live this? And I was like, oh man. Are you going to live this? So I think it's a word to, especially those who are in positions of leading, foolish inebriation is banned in the temple courts. Verse 22, continuing on. And they shall not marry a widow or a divorced woman, but shall take virgins from the offspring of the house of Israel, or a widow who is the widow of a priest. So that was allowed. 
If a woman was a widow from another priest, then a priest could marry her. And that's interesting, but the whole idea here is he gives marrying and burying regulations for the priests. Continuing on, uh, skip down real quickly, jump down to verse 25. They shall not go to a dead person to defile themselves, however, for father, for mother, for son, for daughter, for brother, or for a sister who has not had a husband, they may defile themselves. After he is cleansed, seven days shall elapse for him, and on the day that he goes into the sanctuary, into the inner court to minister in the sanctuary, he shall offer his sin offering, declares the Lord God, because remember, death is still a picture of sin. Death is still the result of sin. Even in the millennial kingdom where death will happen, it is a picture of sin, and it is a defiling thing, and God says for the priests, if it's your immediate close family, then you can go to the funeral. You can be involved, but when you come back in, you've got to offer up a sin offering. So regulations for marriage, regulations for funerals. Verse 23. Where is verse? There it is. Moreover, they shall teach my people the difference between the holy and the profane and cause them to discern between the unclean and the clean. In a dispute, they shall take their stand to judge and they shall judge it according to my ordinances and they shall also keep my laws and my statutes in all my appointed feasts and sanctify my Sabbath. So again, the sons of Zadok have some very specific roles here. They minister to the Lord, but they also minister to the people. They have priestly obligations. They are to teach the difference between that which is holy and that which is profane. They are to arbitrate as judges. If there are disputes among the people, they go to the sons of Zadok, those those priestly arbitrators. They are to keep the feasts and the Sabbaths and to be specific about these things. Going on in verse 28 now, you can jump to 28. It shall be with regard to an inheritance for them that I am their inheritance and you shall give them no possession in Israel. I am their possession. So a blessed possession here, no land inheritance for the sons of Zadok. The Levites, by the way, do get a land inheritance. The Levites in general. We'll get there, not next week, but the following week, you will see that every one of the 12 tribes, the 13 tribes actually of Israel, every tribe has an exact allotment of land, and going from the top of Israel to the bottom, it's the exact same amount for every tribe. They all get it. And the Levites do too. The sons of Zadok do not get a land inheritance. Their inheritance is the Lord. And God even says, I am their possession. Wow. What a special group of guys. An amazing group of priests that God says, I am their possession. And their uh, dwellings will be right there in Jerusalem, the closest to the temple. Right there up next, close to the Lord. And uh, it goes on and gives some gracious provisions. They shall eat the grain offering and the sin offering and the guilt offering. And every devoted thing in Israel shall be theirs. The first of all the first fruits of every kind and every contribution of every kind from all your contributions. Pause for a moment. It reminds me here, as God says, I'm going to provide for the sons of Zadok. That God's provision is greatest for those who seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Matthew 6.33 And all these things will be added to you. If you want, if you desire it, God will be your provider in all things. What do I have to do? Seek first the kingdom. Seek first His righteousness. Put that as number one on your to-do list every single day. You seek His will and His work first. And He will provide. He'll take care of the rest. You don't have to stress about it. 
2 Corinthians 9.8, God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. Read on. He says, after the first fruits of every kind, he says there, uh, contribution for your Contribution shall be for your priests, midway through chapter verse 30 there. You shall also give to the priests the first of your dough to cause a blessing to rest on your house. Do you? Do you give the first of your dough to the house of the Lord? I didn't even have to make that one up. It's right there. Give the first of your dough to cause a blessing to rest on your house. Gang, do you give the first fruits of God's provision in your life to the house of the Lord, to the church. Well, I'm not sure I like how they're spending my money. That doesn't have anything to do with it. It has nothing to do with the decision the shepherds here make as to where the money goes. It has to do with your faith and your trusting in the Lord. It's not about you going, hey, you know, I can give my money to the church, but if they're not going to do things my way, I can always go to Compassion International or World Vision. And I can determine where my money is going to go. And you know what? That's charity, but it's not faith. Faith is saying, Lord, the first of my dough, my first 10%, I'm giving it to you. Oh no, Rick's one of those tither 10%ers, legalistic pig. No, I'm not. (laughs) See, you're calling me swine. I knew that this would happen. I'm not legalistic about it, but I think it's the best place to start when it comes to our giving. I really do. And I know that from personal experience because I know when in, in a, a long seasons of my life when I didn't and I stressed and worried and long seasons of my life when I have and you know what? It's God's money. It's remarkable that He lets us keep 90%. That's what amazes me. Do you give the first of your dough to the Lord's house? There is a beautiful interaction here. You call it a doleful interaction if you want. It's not a law. It's not legalism. But there is a divine interaction whereby we trust the Lord in faith. And it takes faith to, to lop you know, an amount, whatever you decide even. But the, to lop 10% off of what comes in, it takes faith to go, Okay, Lord, um, you know, I got taxes and Obamacare is hitting and everything's falling apart. And I'll give you this first 10. It takes faith. But the Lord says... Test me now in this. And this, by the way, is not law. This is prophecy. God said through Malachi 3.10, Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Try it! Well, I just don't know if you'll do it, Lord. Okay. But if you will test me, and you know what else Malachi tells us, the prophet, what the Lord says? He says, not only will I open the storehouse of heaven to provide for you and to bless you with exactly what you need, and no more. He also says, I'm going to deny, I'm going to make sure your crops grow. I'm going to protect your crops. Someone presented it to me this way several years ago. I love this. He said, you know, that's like God saying, I'm not going to let you get the flat tire. I'm going to make sure your car runs longer than it should. I'm going to make sure some of those bills that you would normally worry about, I'm going to make sure that the locust doesn't start to devour. You know, I'm going to provide for you, I'm going to open the windows of heaven, and I'm going to look at what your responsibilities are monetarily and, and as far as care in your family whatever else. I'm going to make sure 
that you don't get hit with these things or stuck with these things. And when these things do hit, like your septic system having to be emptied, I hate that one. God saw it coming. He saw it coming and said, I'm going to make sure the provision's there for the moment that it has to be taken care of. Test me. By the way, there will be tithing in the kingdom. So I would suggest getting used to it now. Verse 31 uh, tells us, The priests shall not eat any bird or any beast that has died a natural death or has been torn to pieces. And that's just a foul direction for the priests. So return to Levitical regulations in the kingdom. And I love that. God is saying, I'm pulling Israel back in. This is a Jewish kingdom. I'm doing Jewish things for my Jewish people in this thousand year reign that I promised I would give them. And I'm following through with that covenant. Chapter 45. Here we go. When you divide by lot the land for an inheritance, you shall offer an allotment to the Lord. A holy portion of the land. The length shall be the length of 25,000 cubits, and the width shall be 20,000. It shall be holy within all its boundaries round about. Out of this there shall be for the holy place a square round about 500 by 500 cubits, and 50 cubits for its open space round about. From this area you shall measure the length of 25,000 cubits, and a width of 10,000 cubits, and in it shall be the sanctuary, the most holy place. It shall be the holy portion of the land. It shall be for the priests, the ministers of the sanctuary, who come near to minister to the Lord. So again, those sons of Zadok. And it shall be a place for their houses, and a holy place for the sanctuary. An area 25,000 cubits in length, and 10,000 in width, shall be for the Levites, the ministers of the house, and for their possession cities to dwell in. You shall give the city possession of an area 5,000 cubits wide and 25,000 cubits long, alongside the allotment of the holy portion, it shall be for the whole house of Israel. Verse 7, The prince shall have land on either side of the holy allotment and the property of the city adjacent to the holy allotment and the property of the city on the west side toward the west and on the east side toward the east in a length comparable to one of the portions from the west border to the east border. This shall be his land. For a possession in Israel. So my princes shall no longer oppress my people, but they shall give the rest of the land to the house of Israel according to their tribes. Now I know you all can visualize that beautifully, so we don't really need to talk about it. This begins the allotments of actual land. Okay, and all I'm going to tell you about it right now, you can, you can Google this, you can also look in commentaries and find this where you can see how it's laid out. It's very simple. The Bible Knowledge Commentary, Bible, by the way, is an excellent uh, commentary for checking this out. They even have it mapped out where you can look at a drawing of this and see exactly what we just read. But here's the bottom line with this. The actual land centers around the temple complex. So the temple in Jerusalem is in the midst of the land of Israel from north to south, from east to west. It is smack dab in the middle. The whole area of that city, of that area, it, it covers about eight square miles and that area includes the priestly portion, which goes to the east and to the west of the temple complex, with the temple in the center. It includes the Levites portion to the north. It includes a southern portion for the city of Jerusalem itself, which I think is interesting because it goes back to the city of David. Right now, when you go to Jerusalem, it's just kind of sprawling over the, the, the hills. And you have the, the temple mount, and then you have really running to the north of there. Would it be to the north? 
east. No, west. West of the Temple Mount, you have the rest of the old city, and then newer Jerusalem just kind of heads out and sprawls out up on the hills to the west. But in the Millennial Kingdom, Jerusalem, you have the Temple Mount, and the city comes to the south, and that's exactly like it was when David was ruling. And I love that, because when you're there, one of my favorite things is to visit the city of David and to walk through those excavations, which are south of the Temple Mount. It's a beautiful a beautiful scene. Anyway, that's the location there, and I want you to note this, that the prince has his own special allotment of land. And his land runs from the city west all the way to the Mediterranean. His land also runs from the city east all the way to the Jordan River. So he has a slice that that begins in Jerusalem and runs both directions right up, slicing the very middle of Israel in the Millennial Kingdom. And it belongs to the prince, and some say, well, see, that's just weird. If Jesus is the prince, and again, some claim he's not, why does he need the land at all? Isn't all the land his? And he has this allotment, and that just doesn't really jive. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll see about that. Read on. Verse 9 says, Thus says the Lord God, Enough, you princes of Israel. Put away violence and destruction, and practice justice, righteousness. Stop your expropriations from my people, declares the Lord God. What is that? That's the Levites and the priests going out to the people and ripping them off. That's the money changers in the temple courts. Expropriations, stealing from the people. Because we're the, we're the leaders. And of course, you know, you've got to give your dough. And you've got to give your amounts and your tithes and your offering. You've got to make sure. You know, we, we established something when we started the Bridge Fellowship. And that was that as pastor... And the rest of the staff and the rest of the shepherds, with the exception usually of one person who sends out the end of your giving statements, none of the rest of us know what people give. Nobody knows. I don't know what anyone here gives to this fellowship. So when I talk about giving the first of your dough, you can understand, I don't know what you give. It has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with you and the Lord. It's you and Him. But here... God tells His priests, knock it off. Stop these expropriations. Verse 10, you shall have just balances. A just ephah, a just bath. The ephah and the bath shall be the same quantity so that the bath will contain a tenth of a homer and the ephah a tenth of a homer and their standard shall be according to the homer. Right? We all got that. That makes sense. The homer, of course. I don't know what the shekel shall be 20 giras. Oh, of course, a gira. 20 shekels, 25 shekels, and 15 shekels shall be your manna. I'm not going to explain what all those are, but all of these, the ephah, the bath, the homer, the shekel, the gira, and the manna, they're simply, simply Hebrew measures. I have enough trouble with the metric system, okay? I'm not going to try and figure this out. But they are Hebrew measures that will be used and will make perfect sense in the millennial kingdom. And I believe that in my glorified body, I'm going to understand measures like never before. But remember, this is all preparation for the prince to dwell among the people in the kingdom. Righteousness is key. So no ripping people off, no injustice, no devaluing people. Verse 13 continuing says, This is the offering that you shall offer, a sixth of an ephah from a homer of wheat, a sixth of an ephah from a homer of barley, and the prescribed portion of oil, namely the bath of oil, a tenth 
of a bath from each core, which is ten baths, or a homer, and ten baths are a homer, and one sheep from each flock. <laughs> homer? And uh, a flock of two hundred from the watering places of Israel for a grain offering, for a burnt offering, for peace offerings to make atonement for them, declares the Lord God. All the people of the land shall give to this offering for the prince in Israel, the offering for the prince, that's interesting, but then it says, it shall be the prince's part to provide the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, the drink offerings, at the feasts, on the new moons, at the Sabbaths, at all the appointed feasts of the house of Israel. He shall provide the sin offering, the grain offering, the burnt offering, the peace offerings, to make atonement for the house of Israel. And some say the prince is providing these offerings. How can that be Jesus? Well, he's the one who provided the sin offering in the first place, isn't he? It makes absolute sense to me. Thus says the Lord God, verse 18, in the tenth month, on the first of the month, you shall take a young bull without blemish and cleanse its sanctuary, the sanctuary. And the priest shall take some of the blood from the sin offering and put it on the doorposts of the house and on the four corners of the ledge of the altar and on the posts of the gate of the inner court. Thus you shall do on the seventh day of the month for everyone who goes astray or is naive. So you shall make atonement for the house. Why is he making atonement for the house? And what about these people who go go astray or go naive? Why is atonement still necessary in the millennial kingdom? Understand this, gang. It's because people will still be coming to faith. Not you. If you are in the Lord and you go when the church is raptured, whether you have died and, and you're the first to go or you're alive at the time of the rapture and you go home and you come back with Jesus, you're already in your glorified body. Okay, you're already in that position of being in relationship with Jesus. You're part of the holy and divine government. I don't know exactly how that all is going to work, but we're part of that. We're not in the human state. We've already been saved. We already have made our decisions of faith. But there are going to be people in the millennial kingdom, children, born, growing up, learning about Jesus, what Jesus did, understanding history, real history, taught truthfully this time, um, understanding all these things in the kingdom. And they're going to have to do the same thing that you have to do, that I have to do in this life, make a decision. Until they make that decision, guess what? Atonement covers them. They can come to Jerusalem. They can go with their parents up to temple. They may be naive and not understanding it. They, they may be foolish. They may even be those who have kind of gone astray. Teenagers in the millennial kingdom, I'm sure, uh, will be trying to figure this stuff out. People right now have trouble believing Jesus when He's right in front of them. In this age of grace, when the truth is so obvious and yet people cannot see it, so there's going to be that going on. Atonement allows time for people to come to faith. So there still needs to be atonement for those people. Because they're still humans on the earth, and when they're humans on the earth, messes can happen. Right? So he provides covering until people come to faith in Jesus. Verse 21. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, you shall have the Passover. In the first month then would be the month of Nisan. On the religious calendar, Nisan the 14th is Passover. It is today. It will be in the Millennial Kingdom. Passover celebrated. A feast of seven days. The unleavened bread shall be eaten. So, feast of unleavened bread taking place as a part of Passover. On that day, note this, on that day the prince shall provide for himself and all the people of the land a bull for a sin offering. (gasps) That's problematic. If the prince is Jesus, why does he need a sin offering? 
Read on. During the seven days of the feast, he shall provide as a burnt offering to the Lord seven bulls and seven rams without blemish. On every day of the seven days, a male goat daily for the sin offering. He shall provide as a grain offering an ephah with a bull, an ephah with a ram, and a hen of oil with an ephah. In the seventh month, on the fifteenth day of the month, at the feast, he shall provide like this seven days for the sin offering, the burnt offering, the grain offering, and the oil. Continuing... Chapter 46, thus says the Lord God, the gate of the inner court facing east shall be shut six working days, but it shall be opened on the Sabbath day and opened on the day of the new moon. The prince shall enter by way of the porch of the gate from outside and stand by the post of the gate. Then the priest shall provide his burnt offering and his peace offerings and he shall worship at the threshold of the gate and then go out and some say, whoa, whoa, okay, it's getting weird. Now the prince is worshiping? He's Jesus. Why would he be worshipping? Read on. But the gate shall not be shut until the evening. The people of the land shall also worship at the doorway of that gate before the Lord on the Sabbaths and on the new moons. The burnt offering which the prince shall offer to the Lord on the Sabbath shall be six lambs without blemish and a ram without blemish. And the grain offering shall be an ephah with the ram and the grain offering with the lambs as much as he is able to give and a hen of oil with an ephah. On the day of the new moon, he shall offer... This is the prince is doing all these offerings here. He shall offer a young bull without blemish, also six lambs and a ram, which shall be without blemish. And he shall provide a grain offering, an ephah with the bull, and an ephah with the ram, and with the lambs, as much as he is able, and a hen of oil with an ephah. When the prince enters, he shall go in by way of the porch of the gate and go out by the same way. But, now note this, when the people of the land come before the Lord at the appointed feast, he who enters by the way of the north gate to worship shall go out by the way of the south gate. And he who enters by the south gate shall go out by way of the north gate. No one shall return by the gate of the, uh, by the way of the gate by which he entered, but shall go straight out. And when they go in, the prince shall go in among them. And when they go out, he shall go out. So perhaps that gate we were talking about originally is the eastern gate on the wall that no one else can go in and out but the prince. Perhaps. But what we do know is if you're coming in from the north, you've got to go out the south. If you're coming in from the south, you've got to go out from the north. And it's a great, worshipful, uh, worshipful, orderly flow of traffic. Disneyland could learn something from these guys. But I love the spiritual implication here. You don't go out the same way you came in. You don't leave the same way you arrived when you go to worship the Lord. The same way with the Magi, right? They came in, they worshiped Jesus. Matthew 2.12, after seeing Jesus, warned in a dream of King Herod's schemes, they, they went home by another way. Because you don't go home the same way you came in when you come to see the Lord. You never go out the same. i got to read something to you here, and you think about this. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Just listen to it. This I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer, just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. You did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard Him and have been taught in Him, just as truth is in Jesus. 
that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. You don't go out the same way you come in. And when you have been found and saved by Christ, He alters you, He changes your heart, He circumcises your heart, and you don't go out the same way. You always go out changed. You always go out different. Verse 11, at the festivals and the appointed feasts, the grain offering shall be an ephah with a bull and an ephah with a ram and with the lambs as much as one is able to give with a hen of oil and with an ephah. Verse 12, when the prince provides a free will offering, a burnt offering or peace offerings as a free will offering to the Lord, the gate facing the east shall be opened for him. And he shall provide his burnt offering and his peace offerings as he does on the Sabbath day. Then he shall go out and the gate shall be shut after he goes out. And you shall provide a lamb, a year old without blemish for a burnt offering to the Lord daily. Morning by morning you shall provide it. Also you shall provide a grain offering with it. Morning by morning, a sixth of an ephah and a third of a hen of oil to moisten the fine flour. A grain offering to the Lord continually by perpetual ordinance. And by the way, if you want to study out these offerings, go through the the study that we did in the book of Leviticus. Because every offering is detailed. We go through it piece by piece, bit by bit, hen by hen, bath by bath, oil and grain and meat offerings. All of it is covered in detail there. Thus they shall provide a lamb, verse 15, the grain offering and the oil morning by morning for a continual burnt offering. God wants the reminder of the sacrifice of Jesus constant in the kingdom. Constant. Now, Is there any question, let me just ask this again, about whether or not there will be sacrificial offerings in the Millennial Kingdom? (laughs) I don't know how you can miss this. And the only way you can is if you spiritualize the specificity. But I tell you, the same thing I said last week about the cubits of the blueprints of the temple we now see in the offerings, the only way to deny these passages is to deny that Scripture is true and literal. If you accept this as the Word of God, then you must accept every cubit of the temple and every sacrifice as prescribed by the Lord for the Millennial Kingdom. It is all literal. It is all right here. And the only way to get away from it is to make this allegory. But I warn you, when you make Scripture allegory, you can make it say whatever you want. Be careful with that. Verse 16 Thus says the Lord God, if the prince gives out of his inheritance to any of his sons, it shall belong to his sons. It is their possession by inheritance. And that really bothers some commentators. The prince has sons. Okay, Jesus and Mary Magdalene, that whole Da Vinci Code thing did not happen. It's not history. It's lame. It's almost so lame. I did one sermon when the Da Vinci Code came out. I did one sermon on it. I didn't even want to do that because it was so lame. But some things had to be clarified that were absolute lies and fabrications in Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code. It's not true. Anyway, no, Jesus did not marry Mary. No, Jesus did not have children. Yeah, but the prince has sons. Read on. If he gives a gift from his inheritance to one of his servants, it shall be until the it shall be his until the year of liberty. Then it shall return to the prince. What does that tell you? year of Jubilee is at play in the kingdom. 
His inheritance shall be only his sons, it shall belong to them. The prince shall not take from the people's inheritance, thrusting them out of their possession. He shall give his sons inheritance from his own possession, so that my people will not be scattered anyone from his possession. Verse 19, Then he brought me, we're almost done here, so stay with me. Then he brought me through the entrance, which was at the side of the gate, into the holy chambers for the priests, which faced north. And behold, there was a place at the extreme rear toward the west, and he said to me, This is the place where the priest shall boil the guilt offering and the sin offering, where they shall bake the grain offering, in order that they may not bring them out into the outer court to tra- transmit holiness to the people. What is this? The holy kitchen. <laughs> it's, where the, it's where the baking and the boiling goes on. Perhaps it's that big building that we're not sure what it's for to the west of the temple. Maybe that is just a huge priestly kitchen. Reading on. You're really just going to leave that there, Rick? I absolutely am. Verse 21, Then he brought me out into the outer court and led me across the four corners of the court. And behold, in every corner of the court there was a small court. In the four corners of the court there were small enclosed courts, 40 cubits long and 30 wide. These four in the corners were the same size. There was a row of masonry around about in them. Around the four of them, and boiling places were made under the rows round about. And then he said to me, These are the boiling places where the ministers of the house shall boil the sacrifices of the people. Amazing. So explicit. Down to the places where the sacrifices will be boiled, where the cakes will be baked, where the priests will do their duty. It is all laid out here, and it's marvelous. But let me end with this. Three reasons. Three reasons why some don't believe the prince can be Jesus. And I'll give you my personal opinion and then you come to your own conclusions. Reason number one, priestly rites. Priestly rites. Messiah, as the Hebrew Scriptures tells us, must have the right to function and act as a priest. And some say the prince doesn't have the right to offer sacrifices. Did we not just read that the prince is offering sacrifices? This prince, who can go, by the way, in and out of the sanctuary, the holy place, can go in. This prince is offering sacrifices. So that one falls apart real easily. We see him offering uh, chapter 45, verse 17. It tells us, It shall be the prince's part to provide the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, the drink offerings, the feasts, and the new moons, the Sabbaths, and all the appointed feasts of the house of Israel. He shall provide the sin offering, the grain offering, the burnt offering, the peace offerings, to make atonement for the house of Israel. And you might say, well, he's just providing those. Is he actually offering them? And I think it's probably one and the same that he's providing and offering that he is functioning as a priest, which the Prince of Peace will do in the kingdom. Well, some say, yeah, but what about that sin offering for the priest? No way Jesus would need the sin offering. Chapter 45, verse 21. On that day the prince shall provide for himself and all the people of the land a bull for a sin offering. He will provide it for himself. Okay? Remember, the offerings are not redemptive. They are retrospective. And I see no problem with Jesus commemorating His own cross. In fact, did He ever do it before? It's called the Last last Supper. The Lord's Supper. He, on the night He was betrayed, commemorated His own crucifixion, taking Passover and saying, This is about Me. 
We're gonna, I, I have eagerly desired to eat this with you before I come into my kingdom. Jesus said, I've wanted to do this to the apostles. And he sits down and he breaks bread and says, this is my body. And he passes away and says, this is my blood. And they share it in this very holy Passover meal. And Jesus said, the meal is me. It commemorates what you're about to see tomorrow morning. This is the last supper. This is the last Passover. And Passover became the Lord's Supper. Jesus already did it. So for Him to offer the sin offering for Himself and for the people to commemorate what He did, I honestly can think of no one more qualified than Jesus Christ to offer the sin offering. What a beautiful thing. Yeah, but the prince has sons. Okay, look at that. Verse 16 of chapter 46. If the prince gives a gift out of his inheritance to any of his sons, it shall belong to his sons. It is their possession by inheritance. What do we make of this? Might the prince's sons, some of you are probably thinking this already, might the prince's sons be the church? Sons belonging to Jesus. Galatians 3.26 says, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And you might say, Yeah, that's sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And I know the Hebrew writer said he's not ashamed to call them brethren. And that we're, we're co-heirs with Christ. And so he actually lowers himself, God become man to a level where he's among us, so we're sons like he's a son, right? But where does it say that we are sons of Jesus? I know we're sons of God through Jesus. Does it say that in the Bible anywhere? Revelation 21 verse 7, Jesus is speaking. Listen to what he says. He who overcomes will inherit these things, inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. The sons of the prince. Sons and daughters of the prince in the kingdom, receiving from the prince the inheritance that is his to give. I think that's beautiful. And John tells us in 1 John 3 verse 2, and there are a lot of things that we've read tonight that might be confusing or, or you know, the ephah and the bath and all these things. <clears throat> might be a little overwhelming. We don't know exactly, you know, even in the drawings and the, and the architectural renderings, we don't know exactly. We have a pretty good idea. What's it going to be like in the millennial kingdom? John says, Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. And Father, in Jesus' name we come before You, praising You and thanking You for purifying us by His blood on the cross. And in all the reading through, Lord, and we intentionally wanted to read through all of these offerings and sacrifices that will take place to remind us of the cross in the Millennial Kingdom. But even as we do it, Lord, and I'm reminded of all the lambs and all the rams and all the bulls and all the goats and the blood of sacrifice. No blood ever shed on this planet is more precious than the blood of Jesus. And we realize that it is by Jesus' blood we are saved. It is by His blood we are made clean and whole and given Your grace. It's by His blood and our acceptance of it that we become children of God. And Lord Jesus, I pray that we will be among those who overcome to inherit these things, that You will be our God 
and we will be your sons in that glorious day. Praise your name, Lord. We long to see you. In Jesus' name, amen.